we're starting a new sermon series. Um, and it's a sermon series looking at the marks of discipleship. And so we're going to be in, the, in Luke chapter 9. We're going to go through that entire chapter. And we're using that as sort of a lens to see, you know, what does it look like to be a disciple? What are the, the, the characteristics of a disciple? What are the things that disciples do, right? So, um, so I'm, I'm kicking this sermon series off. And we're going to be looking this morning at the first six verses of that chapel. And the mark of discipleship that I'm going to be fleshing out is proclaiming the gospel proclamation. My, uh, the point, the whole point of this sermon is that discipleship, those of us who follow Jesus Christ, those of us who are disciples, are called to proclaim the kingdom of God. So that's what we're going to, to make more, more evident today. We are called to proclaim the kingdom of God. So there are a couple of uh, key assumptions that you should know that I had when I read this text. And I want to tell you those up front so that you can understand the kind of questions that I brought to the text that um, I'm going to be talking about today. The first is that bringing people to a saving knowledge of Jesus Christ is the work of the Holy Spirit. Right? That's, I, th I think we would all agree with that, right? It is the Holy Spirit and the Holy Spirit alone that is able to cause a person to be saved. So we are told to go out and proclaim, but we can't make a person accept Jesus Christ. Only the Holy Spirit can do that. And the second assumption that I had um, is that God's activity in our lives, everything that he does for us, everything that he calls us to do, all of the things that he allows to happen to us, God's activity in our lives is ultimately aimed at revealing himself to us, drawing us closer to him, and conforming us to the image of Jesus Christ. God is constantly trying to reveal himself to us. He is constantly searching and pulling and tugging and drawing us close. He wants to be in relationship with us, and he has promised to conform us to the image of his son, right? So everything that he does in our lives um, is aimed at that. So let's go ahead and get into the text. Um, if you have your Bibles, you can go ahead and turn to Luke chapter 9. And beginning with verse 1, it reads, Jesus had called the twelve together. He gave them power and authority to drive out all demons and to cure diseases. And he sent them out to preach the kingdom of God and to heal the sick. He told them, take nothing for the journey. No staff, no bag, no bread, no money, no extra tunic. Whatever house you enter, stay there until you leave that town. If people do not welcome you, shake the dust off your feet when you leave their town as a testimony against them. So they set out and went from village to village, preaching the gospel and healing people everywhere. This is the word of God. Amen. <laughs> so this text was very, very familiar to me. It's one that I've read a lot, and it was so familiar that um, I never really bothered to interrogate it, right? I never really read that part of Luke chapter 9 and thought, hmm, well, you know, how, what is the depth here? What is God saying to me? It was just, I read it more like an accounting of facts, right? Luke is telling us something that Jesus did. He called the disciples, he gave them some power and authority, and then he told them to go on and do some things, right? So I, it, it was never that deep to me. And so because if I had read it in that way in the past, when I sat down to try to write a sermon about it, I didn't have a whole lot to say. <laughs> like, well, okay, we, we, should, we should do that. 
We should do what Jesus told them to do. Awesome. That is a very short sermon. So I'm sitting there and I'm trying to figure out, well, what, what, what is there here? <laughs> and I started, um, you know, studying and looking deeper. And as I did that, and as I started to read it with the intent of trying to see, well, what is God trying to say in these few little verses? A couple questions started to jump out at me. So the first thing that struck me is this idea of who Jesus was calling together and sending out. He's telling the disciples, go out. I'm giving you power and authority to go out and do X, Y, and Z. Now, this is very early in Jesus's ministry, very early. He had, he's still in that space where, you know, he might perform a miracle and then tell the person, don't tell anybody what I did. You know, cast out a demon and then say, don't, don't, don't say who I am. He's still doing that. The disciples have just been assembled as the disciples not too long ago. And so he's giving them power and authority to go out. Why? Why them? I guess one could argue that perhaps he's trying to cover more ground. He's sort of laying the groundwork, going to place to place and saying, look, the kingdom of God is here. The kingdom of God is here. And so maybe sending these 12 men out to do this was a way of getting the message out faster. But the problem with that is that the disciples, I mean, at the time of Jesus' death, they weren't all that clear about what the kingdom of God was. So you can imagine where they are at this stage of the story. They hadn't quite fully wrapped their minds around what the kingdom of God was going to be like and who the Messiah was. So they don't seem to be the most qualified people at this point in time to go out proclaiming much of anything to anyone. And yet that's who he sends. Why? What, what, what was that action doing in them, and what does that mean for us? The next question that I had um, had to do with Jesus' instruction to them to take nothing for the journey. Take nothing, no staff, no bag, no bread, no money, no extra tunic. That seems extreme. Now, I can get packing light. I understand, like, you read this, you get the sense that the disciples are going to be moving around. They're going to a lot of different places. They, they don't need to have a whole lot of bags. But really, I mean, how cumbersome is a wallet? No, you can't take money for real, Jesus? Just go? Just, I'm just going to start walking. <laughs> and keep in mind, this, we're not talking about, I mean, that would be crazy if I told you guys and thought that you would do what I said to just walk out of this place and I'm sending you on a journey for days and days and days and all you get to take is whatever you have on your body right now you would look at me like I was crazy and we're in Chicago Illinois where there's like buses and there's you know there's there's stuff here this is the time there's no buses there's no trains they're walking there's nothingness expansive nothingness between towns take nothing for the journey again why <laughs> why what does that mean? What does that say for us? And then the last question that I had. Um, Jesus tells them to shake the dust off of their feet from towns that don't welcome them. Now, this is something that Jewish people would do um, when they were returning back to Jerusalem or after being in a pagan's place, right? And the idea was that, like, ugh, you know, I'm, I'm unclean. Let me get that dirtiness, that uncleanliness off of me so that I can go back into my home, into this space among God's people. It was a way of demonstrating that where I just left is a God-forsaken place. These are people who are cut off, and now, whew, thank God I'm home. It would be the equivalent of sitting down in somebody's house, then welcoming you in, then putting food before you, and you sit down at their table, 
and act like you don't want to eat off their dishes because they're just so nasty. Or walking out and feel, saying, oh, I feel like I need to bathe. That is offensive. <laughs> Why would Jesus tell people to go somewhere and then, if, hey, if people don't treat you right, because this is what it sounds like, if they don't welcome you, if they're not hospitable to you, shake the dust off, get the dirty off of you. That just doesn't sound all that Jesusly, right? It didn't sound <laughs> Christ-like. <laughs> so why? Why would Jesus tell them to do that? So these are the, the questions that I brought to the text. And um, as I began to be able to answer them for myself, um, some things were revealed to me that I think are pretty, pretty awesome. And so that's what we're going to, that's how, sort of how the sermon will be structured this morning. And we're going to look at it in three parts, each one of those sections. Um, you've been given power and authority to go out, take nothing for the journey, and shake the dust off your feet. So let's go ahead and get into that first section. So Jesus assembles these men. He gives them power and authority to cure disease and cast out demons, and then he sends them out to preach the gospel. Um, so what are we supposed to take from this? What does this tell us about proclamation as a mark of discipleship? So the first thing I want you to see is, again, who is being sent? As I said before, this is early in Jesus' ministry. These are a ragtag group of people for sure. He has just finished assembling them and calling them together to sit at his feet. And essentially, he is becoming their rabbi, their teacher. So he's got this group of folk, and he's saying, look, I want you to follow me. Now, you may recall from a sermon series that we did a while back in Matthew, for those of you who are here, that these were not the typical folk who got called to be apprentices. These aren't the people who got to sit under the rabbi's feet. These aren't folk who had grown up studying um, the law. They weren't religious men by any stretch of the imagination. This, the opportunity to sit at a, at a rabbi's feet and be instructed was huge. And these were not the kind of men that usually got to do that kind of thing. And yet Jesus calls them. If you recall, at least seven of these men were fishermen, just plain old, regular, everyday fishermen. We know that one was a tax collector. A tax collector at that time was about as reputable as a pimp. That just was not something that people looked fondly on, right? And in addition to this, not being the type of folk who normally sit under the rabbi's feet, it's clear that many of these men didn't have a very clear understanding of what the kingdom was or who the Messiah was supposed to be. At least one of them, Simon the Zealot, was someone who, he came from a religious community that believed that the Jews needed to um, rebel against the Roman occupation and a, sort of a violent revolution. And so he very well may have understood the Messiah as being the one who was going to lead that rebellion and usher in this mighty kingdom of God when Jewish people would be restored to their past glory. And there's some who argue that Judas, um, the betrayer, may have had those similar kinds of ideas and understandings about what the kingdom of God was all about and who the Messiah was supposed to be. So again, these don't sound like the people who have the credentials to go out and proclaim the kingdom. They lacked all of the things, all of the criteria, all of the credentials that you would think a person who's supposed to do what they were told to do should have. And Jesus sends them to do it. So now, if we believe that Jesus' intent 
for them was to actually go out and change people's lives by sheer virtue of who they were, right? If his goal was to go out and save as many folk as he possibly could, and so he said, I'm going to send these men to do it because they are just the ones for the job, then we would have to really call into question Jesus' strategic planning abilities. That would not be a good choice. So then you have to ask yourself, well, what else then is going on? Jesus had become their rabbi. They learned by walking alongside him and doing what they saw him do. This is how rabbis taught their pupils. Walk alongside me, live life with me, do what I do. Through this process, the disciples were literally being conformed into the image of Jesus Christ. They were literally being conformed into the image of their rabbi, of their teacher. So it makes sense then that Jesus would say, go out and do the thing that you have seen me doing, even in this short time that we have been together. See, they weren't sent to proclaim the kingdom of God because they really had a great understanding of it and because they were really, really super duper qualified. They were sent to do it because this is what being a disciple is about. This was a powerful way for Jesus to teach them that, hey, I've called you to follow me and you have agreed to come and follow me. This is what it looks like to follow me. So go out and proclaim. The proclamation was not contingent on how together they thought they were or how together they knew they weren't. It was contingent on being a disciple, period. That was the only qualification that was necessary. And they weren't doing anything in their own strength, right? They had been given power and authority from Jesus Christ to do the thing he had told them to do. Through the power of the Holy Spirit, people are able to receive the good news of Jesus. So I imagine that somebody heard them, welcomed them, and received it. But a whole lot of people probably rejected them. So what does this mean for us? When was the last time that you proclaimed the gospel? When was the last time you proclaimed the kingdom of God? When was the last conversation you had with someone where you, you know, said to a person, hey, do you know Jesus? Can I tell you about Jesus? Or, you know, that, however that comes up. When did Jesus come up in your conversation with a non-Christian? Now, I know that there are a few of us in this room who are like, oh, right before I walked in the church door. Yeah, that's, that's what I do. But I imagine that for most of us, it's a little bit more difficult to recall the last time you had that kind of a conversation or that kind of an interaction with someone. And I would not be surprised if for some of us here, the answer to that question is never. I've never done that. It's tough, we don't, we don't like to do it. And we've come up with all kinds of reasons why we don't need to do it. But I think that what Jesus' words here, this idea of sending them out, what it should say to us is this is not really an option. To be a follower of Jesus Christ means to go. I think part of the reason why we don't do this is because we get caught up in our own stuff. So some of us don't feel qualified to share the gospel. We don't feel like uh, the relationship has developed enough for us to say anything about Jesus. We don't feel like we can articulate the gospel you know, effectively enough for somebody to receive it. Some of us get afraid that we're not going to be successful or that we will be rejected or worse, that we will offend the person. I might go and start talking about Jesus and then they never want to talk to me again, right? We have all of these things that we run through our minds of why we don't want to do it and why we aren't 
not, why we haven't been called to do it. I think that the good news of this passage is that it really doesn't have anything to do with us. It's not about what you know. It's not about how well you can speak it. It's not even about how well you feel you have invested in the relationship at this time. It's about hearing God, being obedient, and going when he tells you to go. Being willing to speak when he tells you to speak. And there's something else that I think is very powerful in this text. If you notice, we don't hear what happened, right? We don't hear, there's no part of this story where it says, and the disciples came back, they reported that in 12 towns, hundreds of people came to know the Lord, and, you know, there were a few times when they got rejected, but we don't get to hear any of that. And I don't think that that is a mistake. I think that Luke intentionally doesn't report that information because that's not the point. The point is not how successful or unsuccessful they were. The point is not how many towns welcomed them versus how many towns rejected them. This isn't a message about how to deal with rejection. The point is, Jesus said, go, and they went. We don't have to be worried about whether or not we will be successful or rejected or accepted, none of that, because it's not us doing it. It's through the power of the Holy Spirit that people come to know Jesus. All we have to do is go. (laughs) All we have to do is obey. That is good news. That is good news. The only thing that the disciples were responsible for was being obedient to Jesus Christ. The only thing that you and I are responsible for is being obedient to Jesus Christ. Will we be obedient? (laughs) So the last thing I want you to see in this section um, has to do with what the, what the disciples were given authority to do. They were given authority to proclaim, to heal the sick, right, and cast out demons. They were told to preach the kingdom of God. Let's read this passage again. Jesus called the 12 together. He gave them power and authority to drive out all demons and cure disease. And he sent them out to preach the kingdom of God and to heal the sick. Jesus gave these men authority to cure disease and cast out demons. And in light of Jesus' ministry, like I said earlier, this makes sense. A huge part of his ministry was doing just that. He, was, he walked around, he healed sick people, he cast out demons. This is something that he did. And so it would make sense that these men are his disciples, that these people are sitting under his feet, that they are, you know, he is their rabbi, that they would do the thing that he does. But there's a little bit more to it than this. If you could turn your Bibles to Luke chapter 4, we're going to read verses 17 to 21. Um, And just for some context, this is at the point of Luke where uh, Jesus has come out of the wilderness. He's already been baptized. The Holy Spirit has rested on him. He's gone into the wilderness for 40 days and 40 nights, and he's tempted by the devil. And so um, he's resisted this temptation, and he's come down, you know, from... the wilderness, or come down from the little mountaintop, or however it goes, you know where he was. Um, and, <laughs> and he goes into the synagogue. It's on the Sabbath, and so he's going into the synagogue. Um, so beginning with verse 17, it reads, The scroll of the po- prophet Isaiah was handed to him. Unrolling it, he found the place where it is written, The Spirit of the Lord is on me because he has anointed me to preach good news to the poor. He has sent me to proclaim freedom from the prisoners and recovery of sight for the blind, to release the oppressed, to proclaim the year of the Lord's favor. 
Then he rolled up the scroll, gave it back to the attendant, and sat down. The eyes of everyone in the synagogue were fastened on him, and he began saying to them, Today this scripture is fulfilled in your hearing. The very next thing that we see in Luke's gospel are various accounts of Jesus uh, doing, going about doing the business of this ministry that he announced. What does he do? Well, the first thing he does is he goes out and he frees a man who was demon-possessed by casting out that demon. And the next thing he does is he goes into Calpurnium and he just starts healing lots and lots of people. Jesus' ministry, the ministry that he just announced in the synagogue, it's all about freeing people from oppression. It's about preaching good news to the poor. And the first thing he does is perform, the first miracle that he performs to evidence this ministry is heal sick people. Almost every social justice ministry that I have been involved in has used this passage from Luke or the corresponding passage from Isaiah to justify its existence, right? This is a, one of the passages of scripture that we draw on when we want to explain why we don't just pray for the poor, but why we care about, um, you know, what our politicians are doing to address it. This is one of the passages of scripture that we will draw on to justify why we sign petitions and why we call our legislators to say that we don't want programs that benefit the poor in our community to be taken away. It's one of the passages that we use to explain why we care about eradicating racism and sexism and all the other oppressive isms. It's one of the scriptures that we draw on to explain why we believe that our calling is to actually physically, tangibly help folk who are hurting and poor and broken. And it's simple. The argument is simple. Jesus, quoting the prophet Isaiah, makes a very clear case that the kingdom of God is about freedom from those things. It's about freedom from oppression. Jesus didn't come to tell people about the kingdom. He came to show them the kingdom, right? He came to free them from the things that bind them, from oppression, from bondage. And how does he do that? He does it by addressing the things in their life that oppress them. He did it by addressing the things in their life that held them in bondage. See, at this time, being sick wasn't just a matter of not feeling well, right? It wasn't just this personal thing that I, I have, I'm sick, I'm, I'm down, and as devastating as that may be for me and my family, it's not necessarily seen as a societal problem. At this time, it absolutely was. Being sick meant that you were marginalized. There were certain types of illnesses, leprosy, for example, that would cause a person to be deemed unclean. That meant that you were not only cast out from participation in religious, the religious life of the community, but you were marginalized in such a way that making a living, earning a living for yourself was very difficult. The poor were the sick. And this wasn't just by chance, right? It wasn't just because, oh, they're sick so they, they can't work. There were systems in place that made it necessarily so that the poor would be the sick, the sick would be the poor. They were the ones on the outside. They were often marginalized and deemed unacceptable. So by healing the sick and casting out demons, Jesus is very, in a very tangible way is demonstrating having power and dominion over demonic forces in this world and authority over the powers, the oppressive structures that have created that poverty. 
He's saying, I have authority over the oppressive structures that have said that some folk are always going to be on the outside, that some folk will be caught up in a cycle of poverty, of being the poor. He wasn't just being a good guy. He wasn't just saying, I care about you individually and your infirmity. He was saying, I care about the system that has put you on the outside. Healing the sick, casting out demons was a powerful demonstration that you and that I need to be involved in the world that God has put us in. It's not just about individual acts of mercy. He was showing that I am against systemic oppression. This is him being faithful to his ministry to free the oppressed. And this is what the 12 were given authority to do. Just like Jesus, they were given power over demonic forces and authority over oppressive structures in this world. Just like Jesus, they were told to go out and not only proclaim the gospel with their words, but to proclaim it with their actions, to show people what the kingdom of God looks like. It looks like freedom. So what does this mean for us? As disciples of Jesus Christ, we have to understand that proclamation is not just about what we say. It is about what we do. We have been given authority and power to heal the sick and hurting in our world. I think too often we as Christians like to put our head in the sand oh, the culture is just so perverted, sexuality has just been turned away, so what will we do? We'll just retreat into the safety of our little subcultures, right? The schools are falling apart. Uh, we can't, what's being taught in them is just ridiculous, so what will we do? We'll just pull our children out, and we'll just tell them all about Jesus, and we'll cover their eyes so they can't see. We have made the church our own little fortified city, <laughs> and we can retreat in there and be so protected from all of the nasty ugliness out there. But what this passage says to me is that was not what Jesus has called us to do. This is a powerful reminder that we are supposed to be in the world, but not of it. We are supposed to be in the world as light. We are supposed to go, and we have been given the power and the authority. We don't have to be afraid. We don't have to be in despair. We don't have to be discouraged when we look around at our communities, when we look around at our cities. We don't have to feel hopeless, like, what could I possibly do? Things are so bad. We have been given power and authority to address those things, to speak directly to the pain, the suffering, the oppression in our world, and to overcome it. We have been given that power and that authority. Um, this weekend, or yesterday, because this is Sunday, yesterday I was at a training for um, the, a ministry called the Rose of Sharon. And this is a, a ministry that goes out. Some of you guys may remember um, when Evangelist Shepherd came and she talked about human trafficking. Um, and so this is a ministry that goes out to prostitutes um, and those caught up in addiction, and they they go out, they pray for those women, they have a whole center set up so that for those who might want to come off the street and um, get help, they have a place to help them get rehabilitated. And so the training was all about how to do this. The thing that impressed me the most sitting there, um, the church that does this, if you walk up the street where the, where the training was, you'll see all these little blue awnings. There's tons of little blue awnings. Um, so we're sitting there and the pastor explained that every blue awning that you see is um, it's a, it's a facility of the church. And it's one of the, it houses one of the ministries of the church. The church has like 200 
some odd ministries, right? It's awesome. So she said, she was like, we have claimed this, this area. We have claimed this neighborhood for Jesus. And you see it. You see it. And what was powerful to me was that every blue awning that you saw represented a very practical, tangible way that they said we are going to be the hands and feet of Jesus in this community. Every blue awning that I saw represented a way that they said, I am taking authority. I see oppression. I see suffering. And we've been given authority to deal with it. And this is where we deal with it. How awesome would it be if every church in Chicago said, we have claimed this area for Jesus? We have claimed this space for Jesus. We take power and authority over the oppression, over the hurt, over the suffering. We have done that here, and we're going to be the hands and the feet of Jesus in this place. How powerful would that be? That's what this calls us to. All right, so this brings us to the next section. Take nothing for the journey. So now in Luke's account, these folk are told they can't take anything. Matthew or Mark tells the story a little bit differently. They get to take a staff in, in Mark's account of the gospel. But really, honestly, I mean, if I'm going to get something, I would choose the money. I don't really, you know, the staff is cool, Jesus, but could I, I would like to take cash. But no, basically, these folk are sent out with nothing, nothing. Why on earth would you send a group of people out <laughs> to do anything and tell them that they can't take anything? Not even a change of clothes. <laughs> um, so I was talking to my husband about this passage and kind of sharing one of the roadblocks that I was having because I couldn't figure out what to say. And so he started talking to me about um, his job and how it has been such a blessing to him. Okay, so as he's talking to me initially, because I always do this whenever he's talking to me about my sermons, I'll be like, okay, all right, all right. But then all the time the Holy Spirit will speak and like, it'll be like, oh, that's awesome actually. No, that works, that works. So. He's talking to me, and the Holy Spirit, I heard him say, that's it, that's it. Um, and he started to reveal, the Holy Spirit started to reveal different things about this passage. So some of you may know, um, Carlos last, or mid last year, sometime last year, was offered another position at his job that he has taken. So this was a big deal for our family because the other position uh, was not going to initially be offering any more money, but it was going to be demanding more time. <laughs> Uh, in his last position, he was able to work from home three days a week, which was awesome for our family. This position, he wasn't sure if he was going to be able to work from home at all. The upside was that we thought that this position was going to eventually and, and relatively quickly lead to a, a promotion that would have meant a significant raise. All right, so forward, fast forward to a few months into the new job. We prayed about it as a family. Carlos prayed about it, and he felt strongly that God was leading him to take this position. And so he took it. Now, I'm not going to lie. I was a little bit um, less sure that God had called him <laughs> to do that because, you know, the, the details around when this raise was going to happen were a little bit sketchy to me. And I'm thinking, I, I kind of like you being home three days a week. But, that's, but, but I agreed. I did feel like God was probably leading in that direction. I just wasn't as sure as my husband. So he takes it. A few months in, it becomes very clear that that raise is not going to be happening um, in the near future. In addition to that, the time commitment that I already suspected was going to be crazy was for real, for real, for real crazy. It wasn't just that he's not able to work from home three days a week. He was, you know, like not able to take office 
easily, you know, just the flexibility was dramatically decreased. He had to go in at a certain time, be home at a certain time. It was tough. So this was a huge adjustment for our family. And honestly, I was feeling like, you know, this new position took away like the one perk that working for the federal government had offered us, which was the flexibility. We go on vacation when we want to. He can, you know, the kids need to be picked up early. He could take off, but that's all gone. And, and there was no money. That's fine. So now, fast forward to now. <laughs> so since being in this position, honestly, um, like almost every day, every other day, Carlos will come home and he's talking to me about some amazing conversation he had with some coworker about Jesus or about something in their life or about this. There are people who come to him now and seek him out to ask for his advice. They call him the counselor at his job. <laughs> so they come to him to seek him out, to talk to him. He's been able to have conversations with folk um, in the first just few months of being in this position, that deeper conversations that he was able to have in years of being in the other position. Like my husband, is a, he is an evangelist. He believes and he's, he's one of those people who could tell you it was last week that, you know, just yesterday I talked to somebody about Jesus. But in his other position, he had spent years pouring into relationships and building the kind of trust that would allow him to, to you know, make that push. Say, do you know Jesus? Do you want to come to my church? This job, he's been there a few months, and that's already happening. That is awesome. So now, hear the testimony. What, what does this have to do with take nothing for the journey? While we have certainly adjusted to the new time constraints, the testimony of this is not, oh my gosh, and in the end, it ended up being such a huge blessing for our family. <laughs> no, it still sucks sometimes, <laughs> quite frankly. That's not the testimony. The testimony is that my husband is able to share Jesus with people. The testimony is that there are people on his job, folk who don't know the Lord, who are now hearing and seeing the kingdom proclaimed through him, folk who may not have had that opportunity otherwise. It's very clear that God absolutely called him to this position. He absolutely wanted him to be there. He placed him there for such a time as this because there are folk that the Holy Spirit has been working on. There are hearts that the Holy Spirit has been working in, drawing them closer to Jesus. And Carlos being obedient is now being able to sort of harvest that. Folk are coming up to him to ask him questions. That is the testimony. See, taking nothing for the journey is about learning to trust and depend on God. And it's also about recognizing that it really is not about you. When God tells us to go, we don't get, to, it's not, you shouldn't go. Let me tell you right now, do not go. If your motivation is, I know that when I do this, I'm gonna be so blessed. Well, you will be blessed, but it may not look like what you think it's going to look like. Being blessed may not look like that financial thing that you thought was going to happen in your life. It more than likely is not going to look like comfort and security, the way we define comfort and security in our culture. That's not it. Take nothing for the journey reminds us that when God calls us to go, the blessing is that he is using us mightily in his kingdom. The blessing is that he is taking care of us. The blessing is that we grow in our trust and our faithfulness of who he is. That's the blessing. It's not about us. It is not about us. <laughs> Another thing that I, um, that I find so funny about this passage, uh, and this is the next thing that I want you to see, Jesus doesn't just tell them to take nothing for the journey. He sends them out to the poor and tells them, stay in the first house you get to. Now, 
I don't know how many of you have been poor, but let me tell you, as one who has been poor and knows lots of poor folk, um, let me tell you what I know about poor people. We can be, well, I, poor folk can be very hospitable, right? We will take you in, share everything that we have. Here's the problem. Poor folk don't have much to share. So you sent people out with nothing to minister to folk who have nothing, <laughs> and you tell them to stay at the first place. You, they couldn't even go into the town and say, well, looks like that family might be able to take really good care of me. Get there, maybe they weren't, and say, well, let me go over here. Nope. If they happened to stumble upon the first house that was the brokest people in the neighborhood and the brokest people in the neighborhood took them in, that's where they had to stay. That, you have nothing. You've been sent to people with nothing. And yet they go. And their obedience, their obedience to God builds their faithfulness to Jesus Christ. They had no idea what the outcome was going to be. They didn't know if they were going to be starving on this whole journey. They didn't know if anybody was going to accept them. In fact, Jesus' words seemed to suggest that they should expect not to be accepted. There may be times where you've traveled for days. You get somewhere and you show up and they don't want to receive you. And so you know what you have to do? Go on and start traveling for another days until you get to another town. They had no idea what this journey was going to be. And yet they went. See, Jesus' instruction to take nothing for the journey should be a wake-up call to us that following God does not necessarily look the way we think it ought to look. It does not necessarily mean, in fact, it probably means the exact opposite of what we think it should mean. It doesn't mean you're going to be comfortable. It doesn't mean it's going to happen in a convenient way for your life. It may be difficult. You probably won't want to do it, but obedience always builds our faithfulness, our trust. And we know, we know, see the disciples did not know, we know that God will always take care of us. We know that God has promised to always provide and care. So finally, and uh, I touched on this a little bit earlier, but taking nothing for the journey reminds us that we have truly been called to be in this world, but not of it. Jesus sent the 12 out as poor to the poor. They went out to the places where they were going, dealing with folk who were hurting, who were suffering, people who had nothing. And God sent them out with nothing. But here's the difference between them and the people they were ministering to. They had been given power and authority to do something about the nothing. See, we have not been called to keep ourselves pure and untouched by the world. I've met people who, who are Christians who take pride in the fact that they have no idea what's going on in popular culture. No idea. Haven't seen a movie. They don't listen to the radio. Have no, couldn't tell you a single thing that is happening in the world. And they take that means for them that they are a good Christian. That's a sign to them that they are doing exactly what they're supposed to. I'm keeping myself pure. Hallelujah. That, that ain't it. <laughs> that ain't it. We've been called to go out to the people as the people. But the difference between us and them is that we've been given power and authority to speak to that lack in their lives, right? We've been given power and authority to do something about the thing that has people in bondage. And so when folk look at you, they ought to say, she, she looks like me, but different. 
right? She sounds like me, but different. I can relate to her, but there's something more. Go see a movie, listen to the radio, <laughs> turn on the TV sometime. Obviously, we do this with the sermon and with the Holy Spirit. And there, like, I'll tell you right now, there's some things that I just cannot see because it's hard for me to shake certain images and I'll be walking around crying because of a movie I saw like five months after the movie has come and gone on DVD, right? So no, there's some things that I know I can't see and we all need to have that discernment. But again, that's discernment. That's discerning what God has called us to do. That's discerning what our temperament is. That's not saying I need to retreat. I need to hide. I can't see. I want to shelter myself. We have been called to be in the world, in the world, but not of it. All right. So the last section that we're going to look at is uh, Jesus' instructions to the disciples to shake the dust off their feet uh, whenever they enter a space that doesn't welcome them. And I think that a portion of this text reveals, this portion of the text reveals something about God's heart for the lost. And that should sound crazy to you. It probably does, but, uh, but just hear me out. So upon first reading this portion, this was the most disturbing part of the text for me, right? Because I'm like, doggone. Like, for real, that's offensive, Jesus. That's not right. I could have sworn that you told us to be loving. That's not loving. <laughs> Can I shake the dust off of my feet when people get on my nerves? No, you told me not to do that. So what is this? It was disturbing to me. Um, why on earth would Jesus tell folk to do this? So... So like I said, it was disturbing to me because I think a, a cursory reading of this might lead you to believe that what Jesus was telling them to do was basically say, forget you, right? Like this kind of sounds like these people were just forsaken. We went, we tried, oh, you didn't want to receive it? All right, too bad for you. I hope you enjoy hell, right? Like that's kind of what it sounds like. That's how I was reading it. But remember, one of my basic assumptions, God's activity in our lives, everything that he does for us or calls us to do or allows to happen to us is ultimately aimed at drawing us closer to himself and conforming us into the image of Christ. God is always chasing after the lost. God is always chasing after us, trying to bring us into relationship. So that can't be, right? That can't be what's going on in this text. It can't be that Jesus is saying to the disciples, if they don't receive you, too bad, so sad for them. That can't be it. So I want to suggest to you that Jesus's instruction for them to shake the dust off of their feet was actually a way of sowing a seed. Okay. So remember what the 12 were told to do. They're told to cast out demons, cure disease, and preach the gospel. And recall that those actions of healing those who are demon-possessed and sick were very powerful ways of demonstrating what the kingdom of God was about. That was a way of saying, hey, this is what it's going to look like. The kingdom of God is here, and it means freedom from your oppression. And doing that, doing those acts, were what opened the door to allow people to receive what the Holy Spirit was doing, right? When we minister to people's material needs, we... we set the stage for them to be able to receive God, to receive our message of the gospel, right? Does that make sense? So then what happens when the disciples enter a town and they reject him? What does that mean? 
it means that they don't see the sick healed. They don't see the demons being cast out. It means that they don't hear the message being preached. You can't receive what you have not heard. Now think about who these people are. These aren't Gentiles that the disciples are going out to. If you remember, Jesus' ministry on earth was primarily to Jewish people. There are a few exceptions, right? But for the most part, Jesus' ministry was to Jewish people. And in Matthew's recounting of this story, it's very clear that the disciples were not sent out to Gentiles. In fact, they were told, avoid Gentiles, avoid Samaritans. You are going to Jewish towns and villages. So here they are. They are going to minister to Jewish people. Jewish people would have understood what it meant when they saw the disciples leaving and kicking the dust off their feet. They would have known what that was. This is, this is such a sad. Okay, so do you guys remember, you know, back in 2008 when Pres President Obama won and, like, you know, him and Michelle do the fist bump, right? Now, black folk all over the world, and quite frankly, probably most people who have spent just a little bit of time in popular culture understood what this fist bump was, right? We knew that that was just like a way of saying, yeah, you know, what's up, like a greeting. Well, the next day, do y'all remember what happened? <laughs> Folk were talking about the terrorist fist bump. <laughs> like this was some kind of secret sign that they had done to each other. Ha, we have taken over the world. Like what in the world? It was crazy, right? Because it was something, it was a symbol. So that's sort of an insider symbol. There were some people for whom that was just completely second nature to us. We saw them do it. You don't even have to think about it. I know exactly what that is, right? But to other folk, that would have looked like, well, what, what, what is that? That wasn't a handshake, it wasn't a hug. I mean, what is that? This is what this, this thing would have been like. A Gentile seeing a Jewish person doing that probably would have been none the wiser. They'd think, well, maybe their feet are dirty. I don't know, that's cool for them. A Jewish person would have known exactly what that was. Now imagine what they must have thought and felt when they see a group of men leave their town and kick the dust off their feet. This is something you do to the Gentiles. This is something we do to say that the folk we're leaving are unclean. We are not unclean. This is a way that we let folk know that, oh, we have just left the God forsaken. Whew. We've just left the ones that have been cut off. We, I, did, did, did he just shake the dust off his feet in my town? We are the chosen one, right? Can you imagine what that would have looked like to them? I can assure you that it would have been impactful. It would have been something, it would have been an image that they would have had to hold on to. So what am I saying here? The 12 have been sent out. They've been told to do X, Y, and Z for the purpose of being able to preach the gospel. And there's some places that are not going to receive them. There's some places that are not going to hear it. And so what I see in this is God's way of saying, look, we're going to leave them with something. I can imagine that when people made their way back through those towns, as news of who Jesus Christ was started to spread, folk who had seen the disciples shaking the dust off their feet when they left would have had to think about, wait a minute, wait a minute. They say that the Messiah has come. They say that the Messiah is here. I remember seeing something. I remember somebody basically saying that I was God forsaken and cut off. I'm starting to hear now that they say that we need to accept Jesus Christ as our Lord and Savior or else, you know, we're going to be bound by the law and lost. I'm hearing all that. 
out. Maybe they have interactions with Jesus later on, and they're seeing what he's doing, and they're hearing what he's doing. I imagine that having seen that act, having seen that dust being shaken off, something that would not have left their mind. I told you um, like about the training that I was in. Well, as a part of this training, one woman shared a testimony um, of how she got out of prostitution. And one of the things she said, she said tons of people came, you know, over the course of her life on the streets and talked to her about Jesus or whatever. Um, and it, it didn't impact her at all. And there was a woman who goes to the church that this, this lady is now a part of, who said to her, if you continue to do this, you are going to die. And that was the thing that jolted her. That was the thing that struck her. And it struck her because it caused her to have to deal with the fact that she didn't want to die. And it was one of the first times that she had realized, I don't want to die, and if I continue doing this, I'm going to die. Just cut and dry. It wasn't Jesus loves you and doesn't want you to be out here. It wasn't, you know, we, the, oh, in Christ you'll have a brand new life. It was if you stay where you are, you are going to be dead. And that jolted her. I think that for people seeing the disciples leave their town and shake the dust off their feet, I think that that action would have been one of those jolting things. She didn't immediately give her life to Christ, right? The testimony isn't that, and then I fell down on my knees and I accepted Jesus. But that was a seed. That was a seed. And that was one of the seeds that took root in her heart and caused her later on to be able to receive Jesus Christ. And so I think that that was a seed. I think that shaking the dust off, just the audacity of that action would have been a jolting thing. And for some folk, that would have been a seed sown in their heart. See, Jesus Christ is constantly, constantly trying to be in relationship with us. And there's some of us for whom our testimony is very gentle and sweet. Someone shared the word of God with me. I was in a place where I really needed to hear it and I could receive it. And so I came to know the Lord. There are others of us. The testimony doesn't happen like that. God had to shake some folk. <laughs> God has to jolt some folk. There are people whose testimony is that I literally almost died, and then I knew that Jesus Christ saved me. There are all kinds of ways that the Lord reaches and tries to get us where we are and tries to snatch us out of the places where we are. It is never, ever, ever the case that Jesus says, forget you. It is never, ever the case that God says, you're a hopeless cause. Everything that he does in our life, everything, and this is for believers and non-believers. If you are not a Christian today and you are here, I can tell you right now that everything that is happening in your life, God is at work. It's my testimony. I got saved when I was 16 years old. I can look back over my life and I see exactly the hand of God in my life leading me to him. God is always at work because he wants us to be in relationship with him. Worship team, you can come on back up. So um, there, this was, this, there was a lot today. This was a long sermon. I told my husband when I was preparing it that I feel like this could be two sermons because it's just a lot, um, a whole lot. But if you don't remember anything else from this sermon, what I hope that you will take with you is that Jesus Christ has called us as disciples to proclaim the kingdom of God. And proclaiming the kingdom of God is not something that we do just with our mouths. It is what we do with our lives, with our actions. I hope you will remember that you have been given power and authority to address the brokenness in this world. 
If you take nothing from this sermon, I hope that you will walk away from this place today not ever again shaking your head in despair or hopelessness when you hear statistics or when you see a particular story about what's going on. I hope that instead your response will be, I have been given power and authority to address just that. Lord, where you call me, I will go. Father, send me. I hope that that will be your response. Um, the song that I asked the worship team to sing is a song called Moving Forward, and we've sang it before here, and you guys are probably familiar with it. But I felt like, um, I felt like this would be a perfect response because at the heart of this text, it is about us moving forward, recognizing that it's not about us, it's not about whatever kind of hang-ups you might have about who you are, what you've done, what you're qualified to do, how well you speak. It's not about you. It's not about your comfort. It's about moving forward in Jesus' name. It's about claiming this space, claiming this world for Jesus Christ, and stepping out in the authority and the power that we have been given to do something about it. All that is required of us is to move forward in obedience to God. All that is required of us is to trust God trust in the Lord that we serve. So um, as the team leads us, I'm going to ask you to do something a little bit different today. I want to ask that you don't stand up. I want to ask that you stay in your seat until you can honestly say that you are ready to move forward. I want you to stay in your seat, and as you hear this song, I want you to listen to the words. I want you to spend time praying and allowing the Holy Spirit to speak to you and to minister to you. See, the disciples were obedient to Jesus Christ. They were obedient. God said, go. Jesus said, go. Take nothing with you. That's crazy. Take nothing with you. I'm going to send you out on a journey. You can't even take a change of clothes. Go. I'm sending you out, and I'm not even going to guarantee to you that you're going to be received wherever you go. Go. And as much grief as we give the disciples, as much as we like to talk bad about how, how they didn't get it and they were clueless, you know what they did? They went. We don't see any question in Luke's gospel. They don't say, but Jesus... What's going to happen here? Well, but Jesus, what should we do if they, they went? He said, I've given you power and authority to go. Now go. And they went. I want us to stay seated until we can stand up and say, I will go. And not I will go out of an emotional response, but knowing exactly what we know, that we're not promised comfort, that we're not promised security the way that we define security, that we will go, that we will be obedient. Wherever you may lead me, however little I may have along the way, I will go. I will continually, continually follow you forward. I want you to stay in your seat until you can say that in spite of myself, in spite of my fears, in spite of my past, in spite of whatever baggage I'm holding on to, in spite of that, I will go. I will go. I will be obedient. I won't hide from the world. I won't shy away from the darkness that is out there because I trust Jesus Christ that you are the light of the world and that your light is brighter than any darkness, that your light is powerful enough to cast out permanently any darkness. So I ask that you will stay seated until you can stand up and make that proclamation with your whole heart. I will go, I will go, I will go. 
Jesus, I pray that you will make that the testimony of this church. I pray that we will be a people who embrace proclamation, that we will go, that we will say that the kingdom of God is here and that we will show that the kingdom of God is here. I pray, God, that we will be a people who will step out in boldness and the power and in the authority that you have given us. I pray, God, that we will be a people who won't just shake our heads and won't just hide because things are ugly out there, because things are dark out there, but that we will be empowered and emboldened to step out and say, I have been given the authority and the power through the Holy Spirit to speak to that brokenness, to speak to that hurt, to speak to that loss. God, we give you thanks and we give you praise because you are an awesome, awesome God. God, I thank you that you are a God that is constantly calling people to go. You are not content to leave the world in the darkness that it is in. You are not content to leave us in the mess that we are in. You are constantly sending people to go, to go, to go. God, so help us to be a people that move forward. Help us to be a people that move forward, following you into the depths of despair because we know that you will bring hope, peace, life. Thank you, Jesus. Thank you, Jesus. church go from here moving forward moving forward hallelujah we go from here we walk from this place knowing that we have been given power and authority to move forward in this world with boldness we have been given power and authority to move forward to proclaim that the kingdom of god is here that people can be free in jesus name that people can be released from bondage in Jesus' name hallelujah so i pray that you will go from here Go from here, emboldened. Go from here, walking in the authority and in the power that you have been given in Jesus' name. God bless you. God bless you. God bless you. God bless you.